to Pharmacy View podcast, where we provide regular interviews with pharmacists and key industry people within Australian pharmacy and associated industry. In this stream of podcast episodes, we discuss aspects of pharmacy career, resources and training, and how each area interacts with guest current role or pharmacy-related business. I'm your host, Kavita Nadan, pharmacist founder from Locomate, and my guest today is proudly brought to you by Shopfront Solutions. For all of your shelf and digital marketing needs, part of the Arion Technologies Group. Hello, my brilliant listeners. What a way to finish the week with a podcast that I think I'll forever hold dear to my heart. I've had many mentors throughout my life's journey, but there's this one particular constant since I stepped into the pharmacy scene, and that is Michael Gray. Now, Mike, Mikey, as I call him, is the type of person that they may want to make a movie about one day. So, But I'm going to keep you all in suspense a little longer before we dive into his story. In the meantime, welcome, Michael, to the podcast. Thank you, Kavita, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No problems. So we're going to dive straight into it. Now, I want to start off by getting to know you a little bit better. And I want to know if somebody was to, or if you were to write an autobiography on the Michael Gray, like what details would you include from, say, start to where you are at now? Well, I guess start at the end in some ways. I'm a, first and foremost, I'm a husband and I'm a father to four wonderful children. Um, but going back to the beginning, I was actually raised on a sheep farm in a little town in Western Victoria. Grew up watching my parents work pretty hard in difficult circumstances during the droughts back in the early 80s. Um, and really life on the farm was seven days a week, 24-7, when you had animals to look after. Um, I watched my mum and dad work really hard, and I guess that taught me a really strong work ethic from a really early age. Um, it also taught me the value of education as well, I guess, because they didn't have a lot of education. I just I saw them struggle as well. Ironically, for someone who now values education so much, I actually left school when I was 15 and went and worked in a pharmacy, which again is sort of ironic, selling photographic equipment that then led to a short career um, as a photographer um, at a local newspaper, the Hamilton Spectator, and also ended up doing weddings um, in Hamilton as well. Um, I then traveled overseas for six months, saw the world. And then came back and knew that I didn't want to be a photographer anymore. So I went back, did my year 12 as a mature age student, which was um, still the hardest year of my life, I think. And then and started pharmacy college at um, 25. Interned, once I finished my pharmacy degree, interned at the Royal Children's Hospital, which is where I met my now wife, Melinda. And at the end of the internship, I realized that um, hospital pharmacy wasn't for me. And I answered an ad for a job in Maui um, with my now business partners, Steve Castronakis and John. And together we went on and founded the Gippsland Pharmacy Group, which became Advantage Pharmacy, then Pharmacy Platform, and is now part of the Platform Alliance Group. Um, and during that time, we also started Prime Pharmacy Group, which is where I met you. Um, and that's sort of like a cooperative where we work together with like-minded pharmacists to share resources. And that's what I do now. I look after Prime Pharmacy Group. Um, during that time, um, after finishing my pharmacy degree, done a bit of study, um, I did a law degree through Monash University, um, did all the things to be admitted to the courts. I got admitted to the Supreme Court in 2020. Um, and then I did attend a program uh, in Harvard for three years called OPM, which is designed for entrepreneurs, um, business owners to get all the stuff from an MBA but without doing the MBA. 
and here I am now. Here you are now. <laughs> My goodness. You have had a very varied and dotted career. So what do you think were some of your really important support um, networks or, you know, channels that you had in place to allow you to just, you know, deal with maybe the ups and the downs throughout your journey? Sure. I think, look, you know, I'm going to say my mum. No. <laughs> um, family's always been pretty important. And my mum, uh, I saw her, you know, work really hard. Um, she now lives next door to us, which is, um, some might say, wow, what's, what's not great having your mum live next door to you, but it's actually a really good thing. Having her live next door, I get to see her every day and she's still a support. Um, you have your good days and your bad days. Melinda, uh, my wife and my family have been, they let me come home and download if I have to, uh, my existing business partners. So within the, within the greater prime pharmacy group, but in particular, Steve and John, who we've been working together now for almost 30 years, um, and being in partnership in some way, form or another for at least you know, 24, 25. So I'd say um, those people have been the biggest support up until today through professionally, but also when I decided to do for study, um, you need your support of your family because you're doing long hours late at night in the books, and which means if you've got young children, as I did back then, they need to be, they need to be able to pick up the slack a little bit too. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, having young children, especially four of them, you still made that time to be there for them. I think with that additional support that you had in the background, I think that's so important, which something that a lot of people struggle with in this day and age is how do I balance everything, work, life, but it's possible. You just have it to manage possible. your time. My, yeah. my wife, Melinda, said that she should get a law degree as well because of um, <laughs> the amount of time that she proofread you know, assignments and stuff like that. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe so. <laughs> um, having been there for, you know, since, say, I guess the 90s, is that when we entered uh, Maui? Uh, 94 for Maui. Yeah. yeah and throughout that time, what do you feel, how do you feel our industry has shifted? And what have been some of those major events that come to mind that you've been involved with? either directly or indirectly sure. in your career? I guess, look, when I started in pharmacy and I was going to move into community pharmacy, even before I bought my first pharmacy in 1998, I had friends who were pharmacists who were saying, what are you doing? Like, pharmacy is dead and buried, community pharmacy as we know it. But here we are, you know, 25, 30 years later and still going strong. I guess, look, certainly the rise of the discounters, you know, back oh. when I started, it was just your typical community pharmacy. There was no such thing as chemist warehouse, no discounters. Price line wasn't even a thing. So you really had your big stores like your Amcals were big. Um, you know, Terry White was big in Queensland, not so much down here. So it's certainly been a rise of the discounters has been something that's happened over you know, a relatively short period of time. Um, less pharmacists wanting to go into ownership. I guess that's probably more... Um, it's just experience-wise. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but it certainly feels like there's less pharmacists wanting to go into ownership due yeah. to barriers that they perceive are, um, are overwhelming. Whether that's true or not, um, that's the perception that makes it makes it more difficult. I think um, more recently, there's been the push for pharmacists for more flexible hours, and I think that you know has been compounded with the increasing labour shortages that we now see. 
um, with difficult morning to be more as a locum and more flexible hours as opposed to employee positions. Um, certainly, you know, there's been this shift over the years from more supply-based model that it's always been, and, you know, dispensing and supply is a very important part of it. But, you know, you're going back from a number of community agreements now, how we started to see the, the move towards professional services. And I think, if anything, the last two years, have really showed, two or three years have shown us, is that that has now gained a whole lot of momentum. So I think that's an excellent thing that the, that the profession is now moving in that way. And that's, um, and that's, uh, that's a great thing for us all. But I would say that probably two more things is the um, pharmacists are looking for groups or people out there who can help them run a better business. Um, and you've got companies like Platform Alliance that, um, you know, or the Advantage Group it was when we started, but things like wholesalers as well. Now, most pharmacies now are aligned to some group one way or another, whether you can see that by looking at their physical appearance at the shop or they're giving some support via the back end through deals or, or, or other services. And yeah. I think that's going to continue more and more in, in, into the future as well. Yeah. And then finally, I think it's you know, the rise of the digital age. You know, things like Google reviews, you know, you read those now and uh, you know, more than ever we have to be doing it better because the competition's out there. People have got choice with the click of a button. They can look at other pharmacies in the area or maybe other retailers that provide the same service that we do. So I think that is really important. Pharmacy has always been pretty good when it comes to embracing digital, but I think, you know, we probably need to ramp that up even more and take it to a new level. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, with this, especially through COVID, I think it's given rise to a lot more new opportunities, especially in that whole digital tech market. So, um, and you see this new generation of uh, pharmacists coming through and they're straight onto it. (laughs) The more digital, the more tech, the better. Um, so I'm just going to shift gear slightly um, and talk to you about something that we were recently discussing, actually, about these two major cases in the High Court um, regarding independent contractors. Can you shed a little bit more light on these and what it means for our industry? Sure, absolutely. So I guess before I start, I need to stress that while I've done a law degree, um, I don't hold a legal practicing certificate, so I'm not a lawyer, uh, in the true sense that I practice law every day. But I guess I have an avid interest in in the law in all areas, especially this area, work, um, employee relations. Um, so I guess what I'm going to do is give you my perspective as um, someone who has an interest in the law, but also as an employer who employs locum pharmacists, and I guess as a manager of a group that employs a lot of locum pharmacists. So I guess to give you that perspective. So, um, what I want to talk about today is pharmacists or pharmacy employers who engage locums as independent contractors, not as employees. Um, and we're going to say that as an employee, that can be as a permanent part-time or as a casual employee. And what we're seeing across our business, and I think more generally, is there is a rise of more pharmacists choosing locum hours and choosing to invoice the pharmacy rather than being paid via the traditional payroll system, whether that be through the pharmacist does the payroll every Thursday afternoon or you outsource that. But people like to invoice for this perceived independence. Now, it's very important at law 
in some respects that the distinction between an employee as an independent contractor relationship because if someone is deemed to be an employee there's consequences that flow from that and just an example is you know superannuation contributions we'll talk a bit about that later on work cover insurance whether the person gets annual leave sick leave long service leave there's a whole lot of things that flow from whether someone is deemed to be an employee or whether they are deemed to be an independent contractor. Okay, so that's why it's important. And my sense is of talking to other pharmacists or other pharmacy owners is that when they engage a locum, the locum will invoice them. Um, and the perception is amongst peers and colleagues who own pharmacies, oh, that's okay, they're an independent a contractor, they're not an employee because they're raising the invoice. That's the perception. But I think... Um, that may be ill-founded to a certain degree and that's what i wanted to talk to you about because i know we've touched on that as well before i start it's probably worth looking at one of the well, i guess one of the uh, the aspect of law that has really held the principle for the last 20 or so years um it was a, a decision held by the high court back in 2001 it was called hollis versus Vebu. And it's worth just talking a little bit about the history and the facts of the case to get an idea on what the court decided back then. So Hollis and Vebu was a case that was heard by the, by the High Court involved a courier by the name Hollis who worked for a company called Vebu as an independent contractor. Now, Hollis argued that he should be considered an employee of Vebu for the purposes of the Workplace Relations Act because he would get certain employee benefits if he was deemed to be an employee. Vagu argued that he was an independent contractor because of the reason that we were talking about before, invoicing, etc., like that. Now, what the High Court found was even though the engagement was that of independent contractor, they called it an independent contractor relationship. There was an agreement that said there was an independent contractor they found that he was, in fact, an employee. And they applied what they called a multifactorial test in a situation. And they looked at, they looked behind the agreement, they looked behind the name independent contractor and saw what the relationship was. And they found because of ABU exercised a degree of control over Hollis because they dictated his remuneration he wasn't necessarily free to work the hours that he wanted to do, that it was more indicative of an employee relationship of an independent contract relationship, even though that's what the parties to the outside world had right. called them. The yeah. indicia, if you like, pointed to an employee relationship. And that's been the law, really, the judge-made law, if you like, the common law, for the last sort of 20 years or so. Okay, so it's important to understand that distinction. So it sort of started what's called the multifactorial test by looking at the factors that make up the relationship and to some extent disregarding what the parties may call it from the outside. So if you apply that to a pharmacy situation, you can say, well, the locum is coming in. I'm calling myself an independent contractor as a locum. I'm invoicing you. Therefore, it's an independent contractor relationship. Um, and it may well be that. There's not to say it won't be, but um, it may not be as well. And as we know, if it's deemed to be an employer relationship, then certain consequences flow. 
So there were two recent decisions that were handed down by the High Court in 2022. Now, excuse me as I read my note just a little bit because I read the cases over the last um, few days and they're long and um, there's a little bit of detail in the work. So one was between CFMEU and a company called Personnel Contracting, and I'll refer to that as Personnel. And the one was another one was ZG Operations versus Jamsec, and I'll refer to that as Jamsec. And these were both cases that were appealed from the federal court because it's the federal court that generally hears workplace relations matters because it's fed, uh, it comes under federal jurisdiction. And obviously it goes to the high court if the high court thinks that it's worthy of reassessing that particular area of law. So what the high court said was when applying the multifactorial test to determine whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor, the various indications of employment are only relevant to the extent that the terms of the written contract give effect to them, okay? This is the important point. That it is only where the terms of a contract are oral or ambiguous that the court can then apply the multifactorial test against the practical reality of the relationship. So what this means, in simple terms, is if, if you have a detailed and proper written contract between the pharmacist acting as principal and the locum acting as independent contractor, then the contract will generally prevail over any other test provided. Okay. However, if the contract is one of oral, so there is no written agreement, or the terms are ambiguous, then they will apply the multifactorial test and look at all the different criteria, and that runs the risk of them being deemed an employee. Okay. Okay. So if I talk to you uh, a little bit about the facts of each of the cases to give you a, a, a better feel um, on what they actually look like. So Mr. McCourt will work for a labour hire company called The Construct and their relationship was detailed as a relationship of independent a contractor. Um, he was a labourer at a building site and Construct um, contracted out his labour to various building companies like that. Um, the court held um, that um, it looked at all the various indicia, such as the degree of control, the remuneration, etc., etc., like that, and it also looked at the terms of the contract as well. And they found that the on a balance that the parties agreed that it was one of principal and one of independent contractor. Okay. Um, and that's what the parties had attended it to, to it be. Um, McCourt was bringing this action because he wanted certain benefits like Hollis and Babu under the Fair Work Act, which is obviously now replaced the Workplace Relations Act. Um, he then appealed to the full bench of the federal court, so rather than a single judge, you appealed to the High Court up, which is the full bench of the federal court. They upheld that, so then he then appealed to the full uh, to the High Court seek leave, and the High Court said, "We'll hear this." So the High Court then, in fact, overturned the decision and actually found that he was an employee. See, okay, yeah. um, 
And three of the judges of the court found that where a contract, this is already in from the judgment, where a contract is entirely in writing and there is no suggestion the contract is a sham, the rights and obligations under the terms of the contract are decisive of the relationship and it's not appropriate to review the history of the parties or the conduct of the parties. So when, when analysing the contract, the judges examined the various terms of the contract and they said that it was a bit ambiguous. Therefore, because the terms of the contract were ambiguous, they applied the multifactorial test. And on the basis of the multifactorial test, he was found to be an employee. Okay, So even though they had it in writing, the terms of the contract were not clear enough. So the court looked behind that and said, no, he's actually an employee for that. Okay. So that was one instance of how the, the law has now changed a little bit like that. The other one in JAMSEC, so it involved a JAMSEC and a Mr. Whitby. They were employed as truck drivers. Um, but in 1986, the company who employed them as truck drivers said they would no longer employ them but would continue to use their services as independent contractors. They had to buy the trucks off the company and they started new partnerships up and then invoiced the company for the services. And everything went really well um, until about 2017, I think it was, when the company terminated the relationship. And what they then sought was they sought um, statutory entitlements like annual leave, long service leave, um, and superannuation as well, because they were claiming they weren't independent contractors, they were in fact employees. Okay. Um, in the first instance, the trial judge said um, they were um, independent contractors. On appeal, the federal court said, no, 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 um, they are in fact employees. And then it went to the High Court, and the High Courts agreed with the earlier judge and said, no, they actually were independent contractors. And the High Court said that the Appeals Court had placed too much emphasis on the conduct of the parties. and said the analysis of the totality of the relationship does not require an assessment of the practical performance of the contract or the circumstances entering into it. And I guess what it's saying here is where the contract terms are clear and it sets out the rights and obligations of the party. You don't need to look at the. You don't need to look at how the parties have acted over the relationship. You just need to look at the terms of the agreement. Okay. So, what both of the cases have said that, and it comes through in some of the commentary I've read too. Really, in summary, is if you are engaging as an independent contractor, principal relationship, you're. Agreement needs to be clear, sets out the expectations of the parties, and needs to be in writing. If it's ambiguous or it's oral, then you run the risk of it being looked at should there be a dispute and the multifactorial test being applied and the risk that they could be deemed an employee, not an independent contractor, and from that, certain consequences can flow. Now, Following that, this is one thing I'll finish off before we actually look at that. There has been a case, there's been a few cases decided in the federal court since. And the way the court system works is if the high court, which is the highest court in the land, if they say this is the law, then the lower courts 
are obliged to follow that decision. So there was a case called Prusner, um, and I want to raise this because I think it's probably applicable to a situation that we find in community pharmacy. And it was where there was no written contract between the so-called independent contractor and the principal. And what the court here said that the primacy of the contract in determining the relationship between the parties is absolutely number one. If if there is no contract, then it's permissible to look at the contract, the way the parties conduct themselves to infer the terms of the contract. So once again, it's saying the same thing. Have a written contact in place between the principal and the independent contractor. And if that's terms are clear, then generally you're okay. Well, historically, going back to Weber and Hollis, they tended to look behind the terms of the agreement and then look at the conduct. What these two cases have done in the High Court, I think has clarified the decision to the point that the contract is where you go to first, and if that's clear, then you look no further. And yeah. I think in pharmacists, where we are engaging with locums sometimes every day, then you've got to have that in place. Otherwise, yeah. you're at the risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. So, yeah, that's <laughs> how I see yes. that. Well, I mean, especially now when there is a lot of engagement of locums um, that we're seeing across the country. And as you said, you know, the flexible workforce, the the people wanting flexibility and not commitment to a particular workplace. I think this is very, very vital in, in pharmacies, making sure that they're prepared to to have that contract in place. Yeah, absolutely. Whilst we're on that topic of what what pharmacies and pharmacists need to, to do to be prepared for some of these changes, what can you talk a bit about the changes to super that um, has recently also been brought to light that you know, as on a pharmacy level and pharmacist level, we need to be aware of. Yeah, sure. So, I guess it's not so much as far as changes to be aware of. It it's sort of always been there, um, yeah. but it's just being aware of those obligations. So, I guess you know, we've always thought of if someone is an independent contractor and they're working for themselves, then it's their responsibility to remit their own superannuation. Okay. Um, and that's not quite right um, in all circumstances. So I think it's worth just looking at that. And like anything in law, you go back to the root of the cause and you go back to the legislation. So um, the Super Guarantee Administration Act sets out the law on on such matters. And I guess in particular, if I can point to sort of Section 12.3, which sort of talks about who has to pay the superannuation. And 12.3 says... This and once again, I'll read it because I've come straight from the law. So it's that if a person works under a contract that is wholly or principally for the labor of the person, the person is an employee of the other party to the contract. So what that means is, well, you might have a definition of what an employee is in that it's someone who works for you, you remit PAYG on their behalf. The Super Guarantee Administration Act expands the definition of employee for the purpose of super guarantee, for the super guarantee. And it says that if a person under a contract is holding or principally for the labor, then they're deemed an employee. And it's pretty black and white. You have to pay their superannuation. Now, compare that to, say, a truck 
driver, for example, where and he may be supplying his labor, but he's also supplying a vehicle to transport that. So in that case, it may not be wholly or principally for the labor of the person. But in pharmacy, when you've got a pharmacist locally turning up every day, it's pretty hard to argue that they're not wholly or principally there for the labor. Now, so that, I think that's fairly clear cut. And I think people, you know, if they're not doing that, um, they need to. Where there's a little bit of a, well, it's a gray area, is that if a locum uh, has a trust or a company established and the pharmacy engages with the trust or the company, and then it's deemed that the company or the trust employs the locum, therefore um, there's no need to remit super in that situation and it's then it's the responsibility of the trustee or the company to be able to do that now in saying that i say that with uh, a slight warning since the decision in jonesek um the one we talked about before there was um the high court didn't have to consider this issue around um, superannuation, but it was raised by the federal court. Um, and what the high court has done is sent this it sent this question back to the federal court to be determined, because above all others, even though if this independent contractor relationship exists, section twelve three of the Super Guarantee Act does say that if a person is wholly or principally for the labour of the person. So what the court has done in JAMSEC, it said, well, even though you might be employed through a trust or even though you might be employed as through a company, it's still principally for the labour of the person. The High Court didn't have to decide on that. Um, it's something that the Federal Court may decide on. So I think we need to watch this space a little bit and see what happens in the future. Could it could well be that that may change into the future, but at this point in time, um, the way I understand at the moment is that um, if you are an individual and you are contracting, or if you're a pharmacist and you are contracting with an individual as an independent contractor, leaving aside what we discussed about it in the agreement, you need, it's pretty clear, you need to be remitting super on their behalf. If it's through a trust or a company, um, you may not have to, but I think let's watch that space a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with all these, well, not changes, but all these uh, new information we've got from you in the last half an hour, um, what do you think are some of the challenges that we as a profession or an industry might be facing in the next 12 to 18 months? Look, I think, um, I mean, top of the list, I guess, labour shortages is, has to be it has to be one. Um, and I said that for not only just where we are at the moment and trying to get, you know, we own stores in regional areas, so it's just so hard to get pharmacists down in regional areas. I think the Guild has done a great job in advoca advocating for pharmacy with this improved scope of practice. But there's going to be a challenge upskilling all these people to be able to do that. But then also getting the people, the pharmacists, to be able to deliver these services as well. We're, we're already finding it difficult to open the doors just to be able to get pharmacists to come in to spend, let yeah. alone 
having people doing these extra services. So I think it's great, and it, and it, you know it will alter as we get further. Um, overseas migration is um, on the increase. Uh, we've got more students coming through the various pharmacy schools. It's probably going to be you know a two to three year lag, even a four year lag. It will change, but I think in the meantime, if we need to provide these extra services, which is a great opportunity, we need to make sure we've got the people to be able to do that. So it's really going to come to how pharmacists and pharmacy groups or pharmacies are able to attract the individual because the competition out there, and we've seen the you know the localization of the workforce. People want to pick and choose where they want to be able to work. So you need to be able to provide an environment where Locum A, Locum B, you want to come and work in your store because it epitomizes what it is to be a professional pharmacist delivering professional services. So great opportunity, but yeah. also a great challenge as well. Yeah, absolutely. I want to touch on something you said earlier about, you know, students, like ownership in general. And this is something I discuss with my student team a lot at Locum A because when you ask them about ownership, they're like, oh, we just didn't think it was possible for us. And I feel no, like that's so disheartening that? oh, no. because I remember as soon as I got to fourth year intern, like, that's it. Like, ownership is is where I'm going to head to. And now they're just like, yeah, no, I, it's not, not in the radar because it's just, it's almost like it's so out of their, the possibility. They're, they, they don't even want to think about it. And I think I this is where that shift needs to happen. And especially on a group level, I suppose, to track the talent, but to say it is possible. <laughs> you just Absolutely. need to realise it. Yeah. And I would, when I went through pharmacy school, I remember sitting in the lecture theatre and I forget who it was, one of a lecturer come in and he said, yeah, put your hand up if you want to own a pharmacy business one day. This is like back in you know, 92. And I think 90% of everyone put their hand up. You know, and I think of my friends now who are pharmacists, most of them own a pharmacy or pharmacies. So that yeah. sort of tended to play out, you know, you know, go back 10, 12 years when I was doing some work at Monash doing some tutorial work, you know, I asked the question as well, just myself in small groups of say 15 to 20, you'd be lucky if you've got one or two putting up their hand. And I think, as I said earlier on, there's this perception that pharmacy ownership is controlled by groups or individuals or it's too expensive, but that's not that's not the case, you know. I think ownership it's rewarding in so many ways. It has its challenges, but it also has its rewards. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon us, you know, especially people of my age in my era, um, who have built, you know, businesses, who are what is they getting towards the end of their career but perhaps looking at working a little bit less changing it's incumbent yeah. upon us to be able to make sure that pharmacy ownership is desirable and not only desirable but you know they it's something that they can reach for and yeah we owe it to them to be able to facilitate i think their transition from you know student intern pharmacist pharmacist in charge in to ownership and um it is hard it, it's a lot i think it's a lot harder now than what it was down then you know you, you're managing big businesses, you're managing people, you really have to wear many hats, which you may do a few business courses when you go through pharmacy school, but, you know, you end up doing, you know, a little bit of law, you know, a little bit of workplace law, a little bit of financial accounting, HR, counsellor, psychologist. Um, <laughs> Everything, doing, yes. Doing all of that, as well as just being a pharmacist. So Absolutely. Um, we need to be able to um, 
help and facilitate that to our students because you know the students who I've met, you know, they're enthusiastic, they're keen, they're going into it because they genuinely want to make a difference. And as you say, you point out correctly, you talk about ownership, and they're sort of, oh well, that's not for me. It's just not something I can do. But we have, we have to change that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Got to change that. A lot of that's just learning on the job, right? Like you sometimes have to just, you know, tread and swim and and you learn. Like you don't come out of pharmacy school with a business degree attached to it, but at the same time you have great people around you. It's that whole support network we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. Um, So, you know, for all our little budding entrepreneurs, whether whatever stage of life they're at, what would be your top three pieces of advice for them? Whoa, top three um, look, I think you've got to find a problem that needs a solution. I mean, that's how entrepreneurs work, isn't it? You know, you find a problem and you go about finding a solution. That's, you know, that's what we did when we did Advantage back then. Um, that's when I did my course um, in the USA. Everyone there was an entrepreneur and they'd found problems to solve. And they, and they were there because of what they had done. So I would say that. Um Next thing is just say yes. Say yes and back yourself. You know, if you think about things too long and you weigh up the risks and you're there, you know, entrepreneurship, starting a new business, taking on a new venture, it's full of risks. And if you think about too much, um, you're never going to do it. You're just going to get stalled. So say yes and back yourself. Yeah, and sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. But if it doesn't, you pick yourself up and you have another go. And that's happened many times to, to myself over the journey. Um, but yeah, but you give yourself the best chance of success. So yeah, you surround yourself with people smarter than you and who complement your skills. So you have a good advisors like, you know, good lawyers, accountants, mentors, anything like that who can complement the skills. Because you might have a good idea in one area, but you might need some tech, you might need some financial advice. So you know, build those networks. And I guess now finally I know this is four, not three, but you know, great ideas are just that, you know. Yep. Until you execute them, they're, they're just great ideas. So you just got to say yes and throw yourself in. And um, and I'm sure, you know, well, there's a lot of great ideas that out there that never see the light of day because people haven't been willing to take that leap. And I get the reason why, but, you know, that's what entrepreneurs do. They take the leap and just work it out. Perfect. That's it. Well, I'm going to ask you a bit of a millennial question now. So how do you... How do you practice self-care, Mikey? Self-care. I've um, tried them all. I've tried <laughs> meditation, you know, uh-huh. tried float tanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do I do? I guess, look, I guess, I look, I like to learn. So um, the more recently I've started learning a language, I learned French. Uh, so that's, for me, that's, is it mindfulness? I enjoy it because it's, you know, I'm engaged. I'm in the moment, I guess. I guess that's what mindfulness is. You know, when I'm in the moment, learning a conjugation of a verb, you know, it's it's all consuming. Um, yes. So I guess there's that. Um, I like running. I like mm-hmm. getting out. Where I live, there's lots of great running areas around, lots of parks. It's not far from the Yarra. So to head off there and just run and just, you know, take in the scenery and, um, it's Fresh just air great. In the lungs. so lucky yeah. to live mm. you know, where where I do and in a place like Melbourne. Um, and I guess, you know, regardless of how busy we are at work, I always make time to spend time 
with my family, you know, so I can, it's just important because we can always say, you know, push them back a little bit and say, oh, I haven't got time right now. But um, I always make sure that, you know, I have the time, whether it be you know, after school to go driving with one of them, whether on the rails or go out and have lunch um, on a Thursday when one of them's home from uni, just taking the time because um, it's things, I generally find things can always wait no matter how urgent something is. Generally, it can wait. Um, and if it can't wait, then things have a habit of working it themselves out. I agree with that. And I think kids, especially in family, just help to put things in perspective sometimes, don't they? Like what you deem is just this, the end of the world situation. They just kind of bring you back down yeah, to earth a bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially kids that are really little, like, you know, they just yes. got no, as they get a bit older, they, you know, they start to take on some of your cynicism sometimes. <laughs> but when they're really little, they yeah. just come out. They just call it as it is. And that's, that's really refreshing. It. It is very refreshing. I want to thank you, Michael, so much for your time today, um, especially because I feel so honoured, your first podcast, and uh, it really, really means a lot. But I think everybody, especially me, learnt a lot today. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Um, and I'm sure we'll do this again soon. Hopefully. Okay. Okay. Bye. bye. See you. Thanks for joining us today on the Pharmacy View podcast. And don't forget to like, share, and leave us a comment if you found this episode of value or have feedback. Podcast episodes are promoted through social media, LinkedIn, YouTube, and major podcast mediums. And each episode can be found on the Pharmacy View webpage with links to the guest contact and business details. If you're a pharmacist or industry support supplier and would like to join us on an episode, send us a message through LinkedIn or complete the inquiry form on the Pharmacy View webpage. I'm your host, Kavita Nadan, pharmacist founder from Locomate. And thanks again for joining us today on the Pharmacy View podcast.